it was painful, to be honest, when some of the news started rolling in to us down there about what was happening in the Capitol, to have conversations with some of our pastors who have known uh, government corruption and instability in their nation for many years, saying things like, we thought the U.S. was the one place where this wouldn't happen, and having to have uh, uh, some painful conversations about how their, their perception of what's happening here. But I'm just so thankful, as Jeff reminded us, that our hope rests on the shoulders of a king who is unchanging and who is good. And so it is great to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, I've always thought of North Olmsted as one of the healthiest churches in our yearly meeting. There is so much good work that's happening here. And I, I thank Pastor Jeff for inviting me to come and to share a little bit with you this morning about the work of EFM. I'm so thankful that you're a part of the larger family of Evangelical Friends. As Jeff mentioned, I serve as the Director of Multiplication for EFCER, and quite often when I go out and visit our churches, I will find that some people have no idea what EFCER is, and almost nobody has any idea what a Director of Multiplication does. So let me say just a couple things about both of those. Um, EFCER stands for Evangelical Friends Church Eastern Region. That is our denomination. We are an association of about 100 churches and fellowships in the eastern part of the United States that stretches from Toronto, Canada, up in the north, down to Port St. Lucie, Florida, in the south, and as far west as Chicago, Illinois. And we partner together for one great common mission, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, believing that we can do that better together than we can apart. I've been in this role for just a little over a year. Before that, I, I did pastor. I pastored for 18 years, and I loved being a pastor, but I'm thankful uh, to be able to serve the denomination now as multiplication director, and, and there's really just three areas that I kind of work in and oversee in that role. Uh, the first is in the area of church planting, so helping new churches to get started. Uh, in the last six years, we've had 12 new fellowships begin in Eastern Region. Uh, Briggs and Jen Shewitt in Slavic Village, their, their home fellowship being one of those. And we're so thankful for those new works, but also recognize there's a lot of work to be done to continue to multiply churches. The second area that I work in is I get to work with our ethnic churches. So I mentioned we have about 100 churches in EFCER, and, and a full 20% of our churches are non-English-speaking churches. We have Hispanic churches and uh, Bhutanese churches and Burundian churches and Haitian churches and Chinese churches, and uh, I get to work with those wonderful churches. In fact, on any given Sunday in Eastern Region, worship services are being conducted in seven different languages, which is a wonderful picture, I think, of the diversity of this great kingdom of God that we live in as his people. And then the third area that I get to work in, and the one that I've come to talk to you about today, is in the area of global missions. Our efforts together as evangelical friends to raise up disciples and plant churches outside of North America. In fact, I've titled the message for this morning, Three Passions That Fuel Our Commitment to Global Missions as Evangelical Friends. And this is a great time of year to be talking about missions, right, as we finish the Christmas season, which is a celebration, you know, of the greatest missionary who ever lived. One of my favorite Christmas passages comes from Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5, where the Apostle Paul tells the Christmas story in this abbreviated way. He says, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. 
Now, there is so much rich theological truth in just those two verses, but I want us to just focus on one little word that's found in the first verse that I read to you, that little word, sent. God sent his son. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's what Christmas is all about. It's why the, it's why the angels sang. It's why the shepherds worshipped. It's why the magi made that long trip to Bethlehem, because God sent his son, the greatest missionary that the world has ever known, the son left his father's home and he traveled to a distant land and he lived among a foreign people so that he might speak to them the gospel of the kingdom of God. God sent his son. But there's, there's another verse that I love to keep in mind with that passage from Galatians 4 and it's the words of Jesus in John chapter 20. And in John chapter 20, this is what we find Jesus saying to his disciples. He says to them, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am what? Sending you. You see, God sent the Son, and the Son is sending us. And that's why Evangelical Friends Mission, EFM, exists Evangelical Friends Mission is the mission-sending arm of our church. It's a cooperative effort between all the regions or yearly meetings of Evangelical Friends in North America. Together, we have 23 missionary families that are serving in 15 different countries all around the world. Eight of those families have been sent out and are fully supported by our yearly meeting, by Eastern Region, and that's only possible because of the generous giving of churches just like North Olmsted Friends who support our Great Commission efforts. And so thank you for being a part of what God is doing around the world through EFM. And we have a mission statement at EFM, and it goes like this. It says, Our purpose and passion is to fuel a worldwide movement of people who seek first the kingdom of God, planting churches that live and die to carry out the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. And I love that mission statement for many reasons, but one of the reasons I love that mission statement is because it includes the word passion in it. And there are a lot of mission statements for a lot of organizations that talk about their purpose, but at EFM we felt it necessary to talk about our purpose and our passion because we believe that our deeply held commitments in life are fueled by our passions. In other words, it's not so much what we know, but rather what moves our hearts that ultimately determines what we give our time, energy, and resources to. Now, hopefully, what moves our hearts matches up with what we know to be good, right, and true, but nevertheless, it is our passions that determine our commitments. And I want you to know that the Evangelical Friends Church is deeply committed to the cause of global missions. They're deeply committed to the cause of making disciples of Jesus in every nation of this world. And I, I know that this church, North Olmsted Friends, is deeply committed to the cause of global missions. And I hope that each of you individuals as followers of Jesus here today are also deeply committed to the cause of global missions. But if you're not, I'm going to give you three reasons this morning why I think you should be, okay? Three passions that fuel our commitment to global missions as evangelical friends. What are those passions? Well, here's the first passion. We'll call it a passion for obedience. A passion for obedience. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. 
to a passage that I know is very familiar to most of you. We call it the Great Commission. It's the final words of Jesus to his disciples recorded in Matthew's gospel before he leaves them. The setting is that Jesus, uh, this is 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, after he has been raised from the dead. Over those 40 days, Jesus has appeared to his disciples on a number of occasions to continue to teach them about the kingdom of God and to prepare them for the, the soon coming day when he's going to leave them and return to the Father. And here in Matthew 28, that day is upon us. And so Jesus gathers his friends on a mountain in Galilee, and he speaks to them these final words. Let's, uh, let's uh, move down to, to verse, or let's start in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now I want you to mark that statement in your mind. All authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All authority in heaven and on earth belong to me, Jesus said. As the Son of God, they are, it is rightfully mine. And in this authority, I'm giving you a charge. I'm giving you your marching orders. Are you ready for it? Here it is. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Now, we don't call that the great suggestion or the great recommendation. We call it the great commission, and rightfully so, because that's exactly what it is. It's a commissioning from the one who says all authority rests in him. It's a charge to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. One of, my, one of my great spiritual heroes in life has been the pioneer missionary to China by the name of Hudson Taylor. Just about the time that we were preparing for civil war here in the United States, Hudson Taylor was preparing to leave his home in England and set sail for China where he would begin a, a missionary movement that continues to this day that has resulted in thousands upon thousands of believing disciples of Jesus in a place where it's often very difficult to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, uh, this, this man has made such an impact on my life that when, when my wife and I found out we were pregnant with our fourth child, we had decided if it was a boy, we were going to name him Hudson Taylor Savage. I thought that was a good name, but then God gave us a girl, and we didn't think that was fair, so she's Claire. But this is, this is the impact that he's had on me. And he would often write back to the churches in Europe and in America, pleading with the churches to send more workers, send more missionaries. There's so much need, he would say, and so few workers. And one of the statements he would often make in those letters, pleading for workers from Europe and the States, is this statement. He would write, The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. You know where we get our name as Evangelical Friends? Friends Church, you know where that comes from? It actually comes from the words of Jesus himself in John 15, 14. When he said to his disciples, You are my friends if you do what I command you. You're my friends if you... Obey me, in other words. And so it is in our passion for obedience as evangelical friends that we find our first driving force and our commitment to 
world missions. What I mean by that is one of the reasons we're deeply committed to global missions is simply because we are deeply passionate about obeying the commands of Jesus. God sent the Son, and the Son is sending us. And if that was the only reason that I could come up with this morning for why we ought to be a missionary people, it's not, I'll give you a few more but if it was, if, if Karen and I came here and, and I, I, I stood before you and I said, we must go to the nations, we must be ascending people, we must be a missionary people as evangelical friends, and the only reason that I could come up with for why we ought to do this is because Jesus told us to go, wouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't it be enough to say the master in whom all authority in heaven and on earth rests has commanded us as his church to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And so before we think about any of the other wonderful passions that fuel our commitment to world missions, let's just be clear on this together. If we would be friends of Jesus, if we would call ourselves friends of Jesus, we must be a missionary people because Jesus commanded it of us. Bill Sullivan, who was another great mobilizer of missions, once said, The evangelization of the world waits not on the readiness of God, but on the obedience of Christians. Let that sink in for just a second. The evangelization of the world waits not on the readiness of God, but on the obedience of Christians. You see, it's not a question of whether God wants the nations to be reached by the gospel. The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all might be brought to repentance. So the question is, will we as God's people obey him? Will we do the things that he's commanded us to do? Will we go to the places that he has commanded us to go? When I was a, a pastor, I would often tell my people that when it comes to the Great Commission, there's really only three kinds of Christians. There are, first of all, those that we might call the goers, or sometimes we just call them missionaries. And these are the men and women that have been called by God to leave their home, to leave their place, to go to another place, to raise up disciples, establish leaders, plant churches, and do the work of an evangelist. And thank God for the goers. I uh, brought a picture with me, uh, I think maybe in the next slide, of our goers as evangelical friends. I mentioned to you that there are 23 missionary families serving in 15 different countries around the world. People like the Marians who are serving in Romania and the Bertrands who are serving in Haiti and the Kibbis who are serving in Thailand and the Masses who are serving in India. And I thank the Lord for these goers who heard the call of God, who answered the call and who are now serving in 15 different countries all over the world. That's the first category of Christian when it comes to the Great Commission. But uh, not all of us are called to be goers, are we? And so there's a second category, and it's not second in, in worth, it's just the second category. And the second category are the senders. We can't have goers if we don't have senders. And so God calls some of us to remain where we are, to be missionaries in the place where he has planted us, and to be about the work of the Great Commission by putting our efforts into sending others. Through our prayers, through our encouragement, through our financial giving, we send the goers out into the world and we live out our calling in the Great Commission as senders. I brought with me this morning several little missionary prayer cards. They're out in your lobby there. And I would welcome you before you leave today to take one or 
take one of each of those prayer cards. Put them in a place where you'll see them and be reminded to pray for those that we together have sent out into the nations. One of the things that my family does every evening when we gather for family devotions is we take a different one of those prayer cards and we pray for name, uh, by name for those missionaries that we have sent out. It's just one way that we can live out our calling to be senders within this great commission that God has commanded us to, to live out. So you've got... The, when it comes to the Great Commission, you've got the goers, and then you've got the senders. But I told you there's three categories of Christians. So what's the third category when it comes to the Great Commission? And this category we'll simply call the disobedient. Because when it comes to the Great Commission of Jesus, if we're friends of Christ, we're either goers or we're senders, or we're simply not being obedient to the things which Jesus has called us to be about as his church. In other words, there's no place in the kingdom of God for the Christian who says, well, the Great Commission is just not my thing. It's just not what I'm about. No, friends of Jesus must be obedient to Jesus. And so we go and we send and we give and we pray. Our passion for obedience fuels our deeply held commitment to global missions. Are you with me? Okay, so that's our first passion. It's a sufficient passion in and of itself, but it's not the only one. So what are the other passions that fuel our commitment to world missions together? Well, here's the second passion that we share as evangelical friends. It's a passion for the lost. A passion for the lost. We go and we send because Jesus commanded us to do it, but we also do it because our hearts break for the reality that there are men and women here in our own community and around the world who are separated from the God who created them for himself. And so a passion for the lost fuels our commitment to world missions. There is a scene in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, which is one of my favorite descriptions of the heart of Jesus for the lost, the heart of Jesus for sinners and sufferers. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has been traveling uh, throughout Galilee doing the works of the kingdom. And so he's been preaching and teaching. He's been uh, healing people of their sicknesses. He's been freeing people from demonic oppression. He has been doing all kinds of signs and wonders. And the news about these things has begun to spread so that really for the first time in Matthew's gospel, we start to see these large crowds of people who want to be near Jesus. Crowds of people who want to be around Jesus. But the thing you have to realize about the crowds that we find here in Matthew chapter 9 is that many of the people in those crowds don't necessarily want to be around Jesus for Jesus' own sake. In other words, they're not there because they're interested in Jesus per se, but rather because they're interested in the things that they think Jesus might be able to do for them. Some of them have heard that Jesus can give sight to the blind. He can make lame people walk. And so they have come because they want Jesus to heal them in some way. Some people have heard about the feeding of 5,000 with just a a little bit of bread and fish. And so they're hungry and they want Jesus to feed them. Some people are there because they don't have anything better to do. They've heard the stories and they just want to see the show. They want to see the spectacle. They want to see what, what can this guy do? And so here they are, this crowd of people around Jesus. And here's the thing. Jesus knows why they've come, doesn't he? Jesus knows their hearts. Jesus knows their motivation just as surely as he knows the motives of our hearts as we sit in this place together today. Jesus knows why every person in that crowd has come on this day to see him. And so we might wonder how Jesus feels about this crowd of people, many of whom are there to use him. 
Well, Matthew tells us how Jesus feels about them. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's the heart of Jesus for the lost. That's the heart of Jesus for the crowds of people. And I, this week, like most of you, saw on my television screen... Great crowds of people doing things in our capital that caused all kinds of emotions in me. Shock, anger, sadness. Similar in many ways to feelings I've had about other crowds of people that have gathered for different reasons. And I think all of those feelings are justified. And yet in the midst of it, I hear the Holy Spirit saying into my heart, but can you also see the crowd the way that Jesus sees the crowd? Through the eyes of compassion for lost men and women, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Rusty, when was the last time you saw the crowd like that? The word that Matthew uses here to describe the heart of Jesus for this crowd of lost men and women is a very, very powerful word. We use the English word compassion in our translations to describe it. And while the word compassion is a very powerful word in and of itself, it it doesn't convey the depth of feeling, I think, that the word which Matthew originally used conveys here for the heart of of Jesus, The word that Matthew uses here in Matthew chapter 9 to describe the heart of Jesus comes uh, from a Greek root word which describes uh, the insides of a person, what we might just call the guts, for lack of a better word. So that when Matthew describes Jesus looking upon a crowd of people who were created to know and be known by the Father and yet who were living their lives harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he says that Jesus had compassion upon these men and women. He doesn't just mean by that that Jesus saw the lostness of this crowd and felt kind of bad about it. He means that Jesus felt the lostness of this crowd all the way down in his guts. It devastated him because he knew why these men and women had been made. He knew why the Father had crafted each one of them. And it's out of this this devastating, heartbreaking compassion that Jesus feels over the lostness of these people who have come, in many cases, to use him, that that we read one of the great missionary verses in the entire New Testament. The very next verse, this is what we hear Jesus saying. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. And so we see how how Jesus' passion for the lost immediately led him to become a missionary sending Messiah. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into his harvest field. I've gotten in the habit the last couple of years, uh, every morning at 10.02, my cell phone alarm goes off. 
And I said it for 10.02 because in Luke 10.2, we read the very same words of Jesus that we're reading here from Matthew 9. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into his harvest field. And so every morning at 10.02, my cell phone alarm goes off, and I know it's time to take 30 seconds to bow my head and to pray that God would raise up more workers from our churches, churches just like this, and send them out into the harvest field. And, and here's the thing about praying that prayer. When we begin to allow our passions to be formed by the passions of Jesus, when we, when we begin to see other people through the eyes, the compassionate eyes of Jesus, then we find ourselves praying this prayer in a way that leads us to become the answer to the prayer, not just mouthing the words. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, and suddenly we find ourselves saying, so Lord, send me into my neighborhood. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, so Lord, send me into my workplace. Send me into the place where I go to school. Send me to my family members who don't yet know you in a saving way. And some of us may even surprise ourselves by hearing ourselves say as we pray this prayer, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, so Lord, send me into the far-off places, into the dark places, into the difficult places, so that many may hear of the Christ who died for them. Our commitment to world missions is fueled by a passion, a heartbreaking passion for the lost. Now let me share some numbers with you. There are, in our world today, just over 17,400 people groups, we call them. Ethnic, linguistic, cultural people groups in our world, over 17,000. And this is what Jesus was speaking about when he commanded us to go into the nations and make disciples. The word nations is in Greek ethne. It's not difficult to hear how we get the word ethnic or ethnicity out of that. Ta ethne, go to the nations. So when Jesus commissioned us to go into the nations, he wasn't just talking about, you know, uh, political states on a map that have clear boundaries. There's only about 300 nation states in our world today, but there's over 17,400 people groups in our world today. And Jesus called us to make disciples among all of them. 17,400 distinct groups of people in our world and... Missiologists tell us 7,000 of them, 7,000 plus of them, are considered unreached people groups. When we use the term unreached, we mean by that a people group who does not have a sufficient Christian witness within their own people to reach their own people. They're dependent upon somebody from outside their people group coming to them first in order to raise up the church there. 17,400 people groups, over 7,000 of them unreached, representing some 3.2 billion people. Do you feel that in your gut? Shouldn't we together? There are lost people all around us. We all know that. We 
we uh, work beside them, we, we live beside them, and in many cases they're in our family, they don't yet have a saving relationship with Jesus, and we ought to have a burning heart, passion to reach them right here in North Olmstead and in our own communities. But the people that I'm talking to you about right now are not just lost people, they're unreached people. They're not just people who have rejected the gospel, they're people who have yet to even hear the gospel because nobody has gone to share it with them yet. And the, and the question which burned in the heart of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 is, how can they call on someone they have not believed in? And how can they believe in someone they have never heard of? And how can they hear unless someone preached to them? And how can they preach unless we send them? God sent the Son, and the Son is sending us. And out of a passion for the lost, we go and we send and we give and we pray. So let me give you one last passion this morning that fuels our deeply held commitment to uh, the cause of missions all over the world as evangelical friends. And I happen to believe it's the highest passion. It's the one that has to burn the brightest because if not, we will burn out in our Great Commission efforts. And we find it in many places in the Bible. But one of the places where I think we see it very clearly is in Psalm 96. If you want to turn there with me. Psalm 96. And remember, as we turn there, that what we're looking for here in this psalm are the passions behind our mission sending. Why go? What's motivating it? Well, what does the psalmist say in Psalm 96? This is how he begins. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. So there's the commission again, right? All peoples. All nations, all the earth, there is a commitment on the part of the psalmist to take the word of God to all people in all places. But we're looking for the why. Why does he want to do this? And we find it beginning in verse 4. For, or because, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. So what is the passion here in Psalm 96 that is inspiring this deeply held commitment on the part of the psalmist to take the word of God to all people, all nations, all the earth? And it's not the the passion for obedience or the passion for the loss that we talked about earlier, although I have no doubt it's, it's there in his heart. But rather, isn't it here in Psalm 96 the passion that is motivating his deeply held desire to take the word of God out to the nations? Isn't it simply a passion for the glory of God, right? 
God is worthy to be worshipped, he says. He's worthy to be worshipped by all people in all places. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. He's worthy, the psalmist says. That's why we must go, because he is worthy to be worshipped by all people in all places. And because that's true, we must go to the families of nations. Because that's true, we must declare his marvelous deeds among all peoples so that the Lord may receive the glory due his name. A passion for the glory of God fuels our commitment to global missions together. You know, one of the, one of the great missionary movements in history took place in a little church of German believers known as the Moravian Church. The Moravian Church was a fairly small a group of believers, but they were mighty in faith. And in 1727, this small group of believers began a prayer vigil where every hour of the day, somebody from their church was praying for the nations. And they continued this day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Would you believe that that prayer vigil for the nations, which began in 1727, was still being carried on every hour of the day over a hundred years later? Now, what do you suppose God does in a church that's praying every hour of the day for the nations for a hundred years? Well, he does some pretty incredible things. In the first 25 years of that prayer vigil, over a hundred missionaries from the Moravian church, were sent out to the nations. Among those who went were two young men named Johann Dober and David Nitschmann. These men believed that God had called them to the West Indies, to the island of St. Thomas. It was a very dangerous place to go. Others had attempted to go there and had lost their lives. And for that reason, many of their families and friends had tried to persuade them not to go. But these two men were convinced God had called them to take the gospel to this place. And so as the story goes, as the boat is taking them away the, to the larger ship, which will sail them into the West Indies, one of the young men turns around to look at the crowd of Christians on the dock who have come to pray them off to the nations. And he raises his hands in the air and he cries out joyfully, may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. That became the rallying cry of the Moravian church. May the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. And what they were saying by that is, Jesus is worthy. The one who gave his life for us is worthy of this sacrifice. He is worthy of this sending. He is worthy of this going. And so we go. And I I can't think about that story or hear that story without hearing the words of Revelation 5 ringing in my ears, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That's the heart cry of the psalmist here in Psalm 96 that's compelling him to go to the nations. 
God is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be magnified and adored in every tribe and tongue and nation and people. He is worthy to be worshipped here in North Olmsted and in uh, Bay Village and in Westlake and in Parma and in Cleveland. And he is worthy to be worshipped in India and Nepal and Thailand and China and Uganda and Burundi, and Rwanda, and Tanzania. He is worthy to be worshipped by all people, and there are places in our world where he's not yet worshipped. And so we go, and we send, and we give, and we pray. And that's why I've, I've been so excited these last couple of months to get out into our churches like yours and to share with you what God is doing in Evangelical Friends Mission right now with our five-year strategic goal. We, we want to take God seriously. We want to take these passions seriously. And so we've committed together over the next five years to do something. And I brought with me a very short video to tell you a little bit about what that is. It's only a couple of minutes long. And then at the conclusion of this video, I'll wrap everything up uh, fairly quickly. So if we could take just a minute, uh, let's watch this video together. Eighteen eighty-seven, Esther Butler was the first missionary to be sent out by Evangelical Friends of North America. So it's through the efforts of these women that there are today Evangelical Friends in thirty-six countries on five continents. commanded us to go into all the world and make disciples. For over 130 years we've been doing that as evangelical friends. And we're committed to continuing that legacy through EFM. I used to think that missions was something for our grandparents. You know, sending missionaries and pioneering new fields. I've been amazed to be places in a village where when we talk to people about Jesus, we found out through conversation that they had never heard of Jesus. Like they have never heard of Jesus, and now I recognize a great need to continue to send missionaries and to continue to pioneer new fields. According to the Joshua Project, over 42% of the world's people groups are unreached, waiting for the gospel to be brought to them. We look at our world today and we see how much need there is still for the gospel of Jesus Christ today, and we feel like to stay on mission, we need to send more missionaries. We need to open more new fields. We have to continue to obey God's command to go. We have to continue to send our own sons and daughters, our own brothers and sisters, our own parents to go to the mission field. The FM board has embraced a new strategic goal to send out 10 new missionary households to launch five new fields in the next five years. Would you partner with EFM in launching five new fields in the next five years? We're looking for at least 10 new missionaries to join EFM in our goal. God uses all kinds of people to be missionaries. There's no one size fits all. There's no one particular gift set that God uses to be missionaries. And so it's possible that you, right now, maybe God is calling you to be a missionary. We're looking for families. We're looking for single men. We're looking for single women. We're looking for those who God has called to join us. We as an EFM board need you and your churches to partner with us to reach this goal. 
What excites me the most is that there's going to be more disciples of Jesus who come to know him, whose eternities are changed. Because of uh, our passion for obedience, our passion for the lost, our passion for the glory of God, we've resolved together at EFM that in the next five years, with the Lord's help, we want to send out 10 new missionary households to launch five new fields. Now, that's a big goal for a mission-sending agency of our size, to be honest with you. I, I shared with you earlier, right now we have 23 missionary families serving in 15 different countries around the world, and we propose that in the next five years, we're going to send out 10 new families, and we're going to launch five new pioneer fields. It's a big goal for us, but it can be done. I know it can be done because when God gets a hold of the hearts of his people and when we allow our passions to be conformed to the passions of Christ, to see people the way that Jesus sees people, just like that Moravian church did all those years ago, God will move in our hearts, in our lives, and in our churches. So I know it can happen. So uh, in closing, I just want to give you two quick things or two, two quick things to wrap this up today. Number one, Thank you. I want to say thank you for being a great commission church with a vision to reach people in this community and around the world. Thank you for your generosity to the great commission budget. Thank you for being a partner, a part of what's happening around the world. It, it couldn't be done. We can't send out these missionaries and we can't do this work without churches like North Olmsted Friends. And from the bottom of my heart, I say thank you for all that you are doing as a church. That's number one. Number two, will you join me in praying the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So raise up workers, God, from our churches. Raise up workers in the eastern region. Raise up churches from our own families and send them out into your harvest field. And maybe, just maybe, one of those 10 new missionary families is sitting in this room right now. And maybe God's calling you to go, and maybe God's calling North Olmsted friends to send you. And if you feel like maybe that's the case, if you sense that maybe the Lord is leading you in this way, I, I would love to talk to you about the process for discernment that we go through, our Luke 10 initiative in which we look at different fields and who ought to go and I'd just love to begin to pray with you through that process. But whether God calls us to be goers or whether God calls us to be senders, let's just be faithful, amen? Let's be faithful to do what God has called us to do. Let me pray for you really quickly. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you, Lord, for the ways that you have led them and are using them in such a powerful way here on the west side of Cleveland. Thank you, Lord, for their expanded ministry that goes beyond the walls of this church and into their community, and I pray your blessing upon them. Thank you, Lord, for the leadership that you have put here at North Olmsted Friends, and I thank you, Lord, that we can partner together in this great work. So, Lord, if you're stirring in the hearts of people, I pray that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit wants to do among the churches. Help us to be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for allowing me to be with you today. Father, as we close this service, 
Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his mercy. Savior ever true, 
Thank you, Pastor uh, and Kara, for being with us this morning and sharing this news. So grateful uh, for that message and so grateful for what God is calling each of us to be a part of. Be reminded, those cards are in the back. Pick one or two or eight or whatever up and and use those, please. Next Sunday, uh, I'll be back in the pulpit, and uh, the Lord is placing on my heart 